is an Odyssey original. This is KX in Depth. I'm Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. Smoking can rot a teenager's brain. We'll go in depth into a new study about the dangers of smoking for older kids. Bradley Cooper's new movie uh, role as a famous composer is raising some questions about Jewish stereotypes. And if you need advice about life, Google is hoping you will turn to AI. And we'll take a look into whether that's a good idea. We start with smoking's impacts on the brains of teenagers. Dr. Lang Wang is a neurologist with Dignity Health Northridge Hospital. Doctor, thanks for being with us. Doctor, are you there? Yes. Can you hear me? Oh, now we can hear you. Yes. <laughs> Welcome. Uh, so tell us what this study says, and are, uh, is anyone surprised that uh, smoking could cause issues with the developing brain? Well, I would say that the study is a both a surprise and not a surprise in the sense that we know smoking damages the brain, but now we have more direct evidence of exactly how it can damage the brain and how it leads to uh, at-risk behavior to begin with. So um, I can talk a little bit about the study. Basically, uh, it's a feed in of itself. This was a paper nine years in the making. Uh, what they did was basically... Uh, survey a group of teenagers, about 800 British teenagers, over a span of nine years at ages 19, or sorry, 14, 19, and 23, so at three different times, and gave them questionnaires, including if you were smoking or not, and a, a bunch of other questionnaires, you know, what is your family like, how long have you been smoking, how often do you smoke, and then they imaged their brains on those three occasions, their entire brain using very um, sophisticated MRI to measure the size of different structure parts of your brain. And what they had found uh, were two surprising sort of findings. And they both are surprising in that the sort of first kind of this evidence that shows smoking's direct impact on the brain, but not surprising because we know that it's leading to uh, at-risk behavior. So in order to sort of further go into this study, um, I'm just going to try to draw a map of the brain in your head. We have four different lobes, a frontal lobe, which sits in the front part of your brain, the parietal lobe, which sits in the back behind that, the temporal lobe, which is on your side, the temples, and the occipital lobe, which is in the very back of your brain. And the areas of the brain we're talking about specifically for the study is in the frontal part of the brain called the ventromedial prefrontal cortex. And it's a lot of technical terms, but just to break it down, it's basically the middle portion of the very front part of your brain. And we have, of course, a left brain and a right brain. And so they looked at both. All right. So, so what actually, though, happens uh, in, in a nutshell? Uh, if somebody starts smoking cigarettes at 14, 15, 16, whatever, what yeah, happens? So, so they had healthy, so out of these 800 kids, uh, about 200 of them weren't smoking for the entire duration of the study. And what they found is when they scanned their brain and compared it to smokers, uh, the left side was smaller. And the left side was smaller consistently across all smokers. So it's a very what they call a sensitive risk factor. So it's almost they can use the size of your left ventromedial prefrontal cortex to predict whether or not you're going to smoke. And and what effect would that have on somebody if, if that part of the brain is uh, not doing good? 
So that part of the brain is basically used to judge whether or not something is safe to do. It's sort of what they call a novelty-seeking behavior, meaning that the smaller the brain, that part of the brain, the harder the time the individual has in judging, is this doing something different going to be bad for me? And so, of course, the smaller it is, the more they're at risk of doing risky behavior. So, they, so they're more prone to doing things that might not be so smart to do because they're smoking. Dumb TikTok challenges, for example. Yeah, what I have you. Exactly. D- does the study uh, address uh, whether this is just tobacco smoke or does it apply to smoking weed? Does it apply to vaping? It, the questionnaire was only specific to tobacco smoke, I believe. All right. Uh, thank you so much for uh, kind of talking this out for us. We do appreciate it. This is Dr. Lang Wang, a neurologist with Dignity Health Northridge Hospital. Well, I, I uh, smoked when I was 15 and 16, and that probably explains a lot. I know. I, I was just going to say, uh, I, Charles, I could tell that you smoked as a teenager. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and here I am. So. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. Still ahead, is Bradley Cooper perpetuating Jewish stereotypes? We'll look at the questions being raised about his role in an upcoming movie. Right now, though, the number of people confirmed killed in the devastating Maui fires, now more than 100, thousands of buildings and homes destroyed. With us is Jordan Sarabay. He uh, lost his home in that big fire that set, uh, swept through Lahaina, but not before he saved his grandmother from the approaching flames. Uh, Jordan, uh, thanks for being with us and good for you for saving your grandma. Hi, how's it going, guys? Yeah, um, I'm glad, you know, family members are all with us today. You know, hearts go out to everyone else, unfortunately, who did not make it as well as, you know, loved ones who are still missing. Are you back on Maui now? I know you left for a brief time after the fire. Are you back? Yeah, I left for a quick um, trip to my mom's funeral and then came back to Maui. So you were dealing with the funeral of your mother throughout all this on top of that. At at what point did you ever feel that this is too much? Um, you know, for me, luckily, my mom was a good pillar for staying strong in in difficult times and um that's what my default has been is you know my mom would say something along the lines like you know we will get through it no matter how how rough it gets how hard things are as long as we have our faith and as, as as long as we stick together and unite we have each other and to be clear your mother's death uh was not related to the fire was it Unrelated. Unrelated. Yeah, correct. Uh, so tell us about the day. Uh, and, and I think it, there's no reason to refer to it as anything more than the day. Tell us about it. Um, well, it all started with, you know, very rough winds throughout the morning. And my family actually found out about the fire only because uh, a fixture at one of my aunt's house ended up flipping over. And she needed some help. So all of the, you know, the male cousins went over and and some of the uncles went to help her secure it, flip it over and tie it down. And as we're just talking in the garage, maybe about eight of us, we see the white smoke, you know, just up the hill from where we're at. And all of us, you know, we've we've experienced fires uh, and we kind of know what needs to happen if if the winds didn't die down. 
and they didn't. So we we left, went back to all of our homes. And mind you, this is within maybe 15 minutes after we left the, the house of my aunt, the fire was already reaching homes next to where we were. And there was no and, other warning that you got other than what you visually saw. Correct. And with that said, you know, just thinking of the time frame, like, you know, my family, we all sat down between 20 of us. We lost about four homes, four or five homes. Tell us about, uh, we mentioned at the very top that you were able to, to rescue your grandmother. So uh, tell us a little bit about how that came about. Yeah. So after I left that, I drove to my brothers to gather my things. And then I went back up to take my um, sister-in-law's mother home so she could grab a few things. And she lives right next to my grandmother. So as I'm there, um, I see the smoke. It's white. So I'm like, okay. And then instantly it changes to black and it starts to come over the houses that is, you know, aligned next to the road where the field and the fire is. So I tell her, I was like, Hey, you know, are you okay for right now? I got to go back to my grandmother's house um, just to make sure she's okay. When I get to my grandmother's house, my relatives are running around and my grandmother is, you know, trying to get out. They're worrying about their family, their dogs and whatnot. And also her at the same time, but it's hard because she's a little hard of hearing. And so I focus on her where I'm in next to her room, trying to help her. My family's running back and forth. I look out the window of their second story and the house is already like uh, three houses away is already on fire. So, you know, we're like, we got to go. We got to go. She grabs one shorts, one, one um, t-shirt and her purse, no phone. And I still haven't even gotten home yet. And my house is maybe two houses down the road from where she's at. And next to that same row of houses that are potentially going to be on fire next. And so lots of lots of weariness, fight or flight, you know, kicks in and just just seconds to react. Not even that long. And and as we understand it, you lost your home. Do you have any uh, insurance resources? Uh, Did you have any coverage? Luckily, everyone in our home, I mean, everyone in my family, we did have coverage. I'm not mistaken, it's required you have coverage. But in Lahaina Town, you know, there's a lot of renters, a lot of people that don't have that same access. But where are you and your grandmother and the rest of your family living now? Because all of your homes have been destroyed. Is that right? Correct. So we're staying with family members. Um, I'm, I've been blessed. I work for the hotel and we have one uh, uh we have a hotel in Kihei area, so I'm here. And then some of my other family members are staying in Kihei with what what other resources that community community members have offered to us, you know? Jordan, uh, Sarah Bay, thank you so much for taking the time to, uh, to tell us what your life story is like for right now. Hopefully things are going to get better. Uh, lost his home in the uh, fires in Maui. Uh, right now, though, a local professor estimates the economic impact of the Hollywood strikes on California. And we'll tell you how big we're talking about here. And we're talking big. Uh, with us is that professor, Todd Holmes. He teaches entertainment media management at uh, Cal, State, uh, Cal State Northridge. Thanks for joining us. Oh, yeah, you're very welcome. Uh, pleasure to be here. Thank so, you, Charles. Uh, right off the bat, uh, how much money in damages are we talking about? And, uh, and are we talking about people not related to this industry? 
Yeah, so overall numbers right now, I'm estimating just slightly more than $3 billion. And really how I came to that number was was looking at the 0708 strikes. And uh, there was a report done by the Milken Institute that estimated there were $2.1 billion in economic fallout for that 100-day strike. So I, w- I was asked about this in early May by the LA Times. And I said, well, you know, if this goes 100 days, uh, basically, I, I took that $2.1 billion and I, I factored in inflation, put it through an inflation calculator, and it came out to just slightly over $3 billion. So I, I feel pretty confident that that's where we are uh, as of right now. And you're right, it does not include specifically just the entertainment industry and those employed in the entertainment industry, but also people that work in ad- entertainment adjacent uh, fields and in and, and, and businesses, such as your caterers, your restaurants, the people that uh, develop sets, prop houses, uh, dry cleaners, you know, all of these different businesses that very much rely on the entertainment industry for their livelihood. So a lot of people probably uh, have a difficult time wrapping their head around the notion of, you know, that there's $3 billion in growing uh, economic impact. What does that actually translate to? What does that mean when when the figures show that these twin strikes uh, have so far uh, dented, and dented is probably a diplomatic way of putting it, uh, our local economy to the tune of three-plus billion dollars. What does that mean? Well, it really means, uh, you know, it's across the board. It's not only, I mean, of course, a large chunk of this is is certainly the productions that are not taking place, the the film and, and television and all the losses there that, uh, that from the studios not producing this content. Um, but it also comes down to the individual workers and, and the fact that they now for, you know, over 100 days now have not not been able to to work. And so certainly that economic fallout is included. And certainly their ability then in their own personal lives to be able to make purchases and to have discretionary income is certainly very much, very much limited right now. And people have to certainly cut back on entertainment expenses and things like that. But but um, for a lot of people, though, right now, they're just trying to be able to pay the rent and be able to, um, you know, get by and make sure they still have food on the table. So it's a so it, it, it's not only, again, those the people that work for the industry, but also the again, the the loss of all of the production that would normally be taking place that was really, you know, obviously impacted by the pandemic. And then things just really started really ramping up again last fall and in the spring. And unfortunately, now we have these strikes and everything. Everything is just completely to a halt now, um, especially in light of also adding in the numbers from from SAG after joining the picket lines in the middle of last month. So I would say even the $3 billion might be a little bit on the conservative side when you consider that, because the 0708 strike and those estimates there was based on just the WGA members, which was about 11,500 mm-hmm. members, but you've got 160,000 of sag after So yeah, it, and, and it does radiate out because, uh, you know, we, we've kind of focused on some of the peripheral businesses, your restaurants, your prop houses, what have you. But it does go uh, further than that as as people stop buying goods and services in the area that depresses the economy of the entire area, which, which affects everybody else who's here. And when you're talking an industry that's as big to L.A. as uh, movie making and TV show making is, and not just the writing, uh, it's, it's a lot to think about. But m- not just that. There's this. Uh, even if they solve these strikes soon, let's say the writers get back to work, uh, they resolve the strike, they get a contract in a couple of weeks, gets approved, uh, the actors uh, get back to work. But work doesn't just start immediately. They've got to ramp back up because the writers have been out for so long. So that's going to continue the loss, right? 
Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. I mean, I, I think as of right now, if the strike were to be resolved tomorrow, and I know right now there, there, there is, um, you know, some concessions were made on the, on the part of the AMPTP and, and apparently now the WGA is, is, is looking at those, um, looking at some of the things that are being proposed now in that counter proposal. Um, but yeah, there, there, there's no doubt that, um, that, yeah, that, that, even if it were to be resolved right away, you're still looking at probably two to three months worth of, of recovery time. So I'm curious. I, I mean, there are certainly other industries in Southern California, uh, healthcare for one. But do these figures indicate that perhaps we are too reliant on the entertainment industry still? Well, it's certainly a, a top industry. I mean, in the greater LA, you know, in the greater LA area, we're looking at it being in the top five of industries. So it is tremendously impactful. Certainly, from a um, from a societal standpoint, or from you know, in terms of exposure of our area, certainly it's what we're what we're most known for. But yeah, there definitely is a a very uh, very heavy reliance on the industry. But it's such so interwoven into the greater LA area. Um, it's hard to kind of get away from. I mean, I read a figure recently that about one in seven businesses are either directly in entertainment or tied to the industry. So it's so much a part of our identity here. And there's just so much, uh, so much at stake and so many people and types of businesses that are, that are attached that it's hard now to discount that. It's hard to say, uh, to, to look at it and say, well, you know, this is, you know, yeah. is there is a way, you know, we can curb these losses and things, but we really can't because again, it's just so such an important part of what we do. And like I right. said, a top five industry. Uh, Todd, great uh, Todd Holmes, thanks so much. Uh, Todd teaches entertainment media management at Cal State Northridge. This is KNX in depth with Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. Uh, Bradley Cooper is uh, starring in a movie coming out soon about famous composer Leonard Bernstein, but it is not without some controversy. Yeah, apparently, some people are accusing Cooper of what they're calling Jew face due to uh, the fact that Cooper is wearing a prosthetic nose to play the composer Leonard Bernstein. They say it perpetuates Jewish stereotypes, even though Bernstein's own children wrote a statement basically saying they're fine with uh, Cooper's depiction. Judy Class is a senior lecturer of Jewish studies and English at Vanderbilt University. Judy, thanks for being with us. Glad to be here. So this actually goes uh, deeper than uh, Bradley Cooper's, uh, you know, f- physical appearance in the film by wearing this this fake uh, nose. As I understand it, the the argument that some are making is that he's not Jewish, so he shouldn't be even playing the role of a uh, of a famous Jewish person. Just as there's been some criticism uh, at the uh, Irish actor who plays uh, Oppenheimer in the Oppenheimer film, because there again you have a non-Jew playing a Jewish part. It, it seems to be an odd argument directed at actors and showbiz. But but what do you think? It's a very complicated issue. It's much more straightforward with something like blackface which we know is awful, which has a tradition in this country going back before the Civil War. Uh, Minstrel shows are a terrible tradition. Um, In recent years, we've become more conscious of yellow face and the way Asian people are portrayed. And even when stories are sort of taken from Asian culture and Hollywood makes a movie with uh, non-Asian actors, people call it yellow face. The issue with with Jews, uh, Jewish actors, I would say, is even more complicated since a lot of Hollywood studios were founded 
by Jewish men, but they tried to avoid actually the, on the rare occasions they made movies about Jewish characters. They avoided casting Jews. It's a long, weird history. So is the argument then that a uh, non-Jewish person uh, can't play a uh, Jewish historical figure ever? I wouldn't make that argument. Some people would. I, For me, it's sort of case by case, and it's just too complicated to make a sweeping generalization. When I see someone turn in a wonderful performance, I sort of think, well, that person was wonderful, so you know, let him slide. I mean, I, I think with a movie like Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer, which I've seen, I haven't seen what Bradley Cooper did, but when a smart, interesting person makes a complex movie, I'm I'm willing to go see it and sort of see what they're doing. I think that bigotry is often related to dumbing things down. So when it's smart and nuanced and complex, I th- I'm I'm less like I'm I'm certainly less likely sort of you know to go off right at the beginning without seeing the thing and and say oh that's that bigotry or that's wrong or that's insulting. I I'm willing to you know take a look at this movie and there are other issues you could have with representation. I mean, it looks like this movie may be about the fact that Leonard Bernstein, you know, maybe, you know, like men. And and is that if Bradley Cooper doesn't identify as bi or gay, is he allowed to play that role? Leonard Bernstein was involved in creating West Side Story. And some people criticize that as a show, you know, created by four Jewish men uh, involving Puerto Rican characters. And did they have a, I mean, these things are so complicated, these issues of representation. I don't think you can just sort of issue one sweeping statement about it. Well, uh, but that, of course, leaves the problem. You know, if you're trying to be a uh, creative person, if you are a creative person and you're a writer and you're trying to do a screenplay or you're a producer and you're trying to put on a uh, perhaps a Broadway production or a, a film, uh, it, it's really difficult now to figure out what you can or what you should or shouldn't do, because it does seem as if there's always some group upset about something, and in some cases they may be right, but in some cases they may be absolutely wrong. But doesn't that have a chilling effect on creativity? I, I don't know, and I don't think these issues are totally new. I think that when you're a writer, you want to be able to write anything. You want to be able to show, I have empathy with any aspect of the human experience. And when you're an actor, you want to show, I'm a chameleon, I can play any kind of character. I have incredible range. And someone like, I think, Bradley Cooper now is trying to show both about himself, because I think he he's involved with writing this. And then there are always the issues of, are you stealing someone else's voice? Is it a kind of minstrelsy? Is it appropriation? And I don't know that those issues go away, and I don't think they're ever easy to resolve. But you, you know? even have, but it is getting worse. I mean, you have some people now who are making the argument that, that a, a male writer shouldn't write, say, a novel, uh, speaking with a female voice, if the female voice is the protagonist. And then you have people who have the other argument that if you're a uh, female writer, you have no business writing in a male voice. I, I mean, it, you know, where do you where do you draw the line? I, I personally, I think writers need to push back against that. You can't just write autobiography. Fiction is not simply autobiography. You should be able to get into the head of heads of other characters. And at the same time, given a long history of people sort of doing kind of a ventriloquist uh, routine for some groups and sort of appropriating their voices, I think people just have to, you know, keep duking it out. I don't know that it's ever going to get resolved, but I don't think, I, I think we should casually, you know, I don't think we should casually write in the voice of a totally different group, a group we're not part of, 
I, I think it's tricky. I think sometimes someone creates a work of great beauty like West Side Story, you know, and then mm-hmm. and, and remaking it with uh, Spielberg and Tony Kushner writing the screenplay doesn't necessarily make it more authentically Puerto Rican, but though they tried in various ways and, you know, Rita Moreno was more involved in all these things and at least the actors were um, Latino actors this time around. But I, I, I think it's 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 just something we're going to have to keep banging our heads against. Yeah, you know, it is interesting when it comes down to this specific case. You have Bernstein's children saying they're okay with this. Uh, they they have no problem with Bradley Cooper's depiction. And we're speaking specifically here. The thing that really kind of set this off was the fact that uh, Bradley Cooper is wearing a prosthetic nose. Uh, and while some people complain this is playing into a stereotype, I, I think in this case, being a fan of Leonard Bernstein because that was the first record album I ever had was. Leonard Bernstein uh, conducting uh, Tchaikovsky Symphony it was the first album I ever owned in my life as a kid. So that's my connection to it. So I, I, I think that we're trying to make Bradley Cooper look more like the person he's playing, just like we saw in a movie Looper a few years ago. They had uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt playing a younger version of uh, Bruce Willis. And so what they did, they put a prosthetic nose on on Joseph's face to make it look more like Bruce Willis's nose, even though that's not playing into a stereotype. But uh, how can someone say that this is really just not another aspect of the same thing? Let's make the actor look more like the person he's playing. Right. I I, th- I think I I'm not ter- I'm not up in arms about this. And you can have sort of Nicole Kidman playing Virginia Woolf with a prosthetic nose. Virginia Woolf wasn't Jewish. Her husband was. I I I, I really think it's a case by case thing. I think people should tread carefully when they, you know, portray someone from a different group. And I understand what Sarah Silverman's saying. There aren't a lot of roles for for Jews, especially for Jewish women. Often when a role comes up, you know, it goes to someone outside the group and and that's worth sort of looking at. Uh, but I don't, um, you know, I, I, I don't think that it's uh, a, a slam dunk that this is inappropriate or that this is appropriate, you know, that, that we have to call in the Anti-Defamation League. Mm-hmm. I'm curious to see the movie. I mean, I it, Leonard Bernstein is a a, a really complicated, not not flawless figure and his personal life is complicated if his kids feel they work with um bradley cooper and bradley cooper is sort of sensitive to the portrayal of both bernstein and his wife um you know having read a biography of bernstein you know by by meryl seacrest i i'm I'm willing to see the movie before i you know have a judgment all right thanks so much uh that is judy class senior lecturer of jewish studies at vanderbilt university you know when people go through um rough times in life, or maybe they're facing difficult decisions, they usually will talk it out with friends or uh, family members, uh, maybe partners or mental health professionals. That that may be the case, too. And soon enough, though, they may be able to talk to AI about it. The New York Times reports Google is working on having AI offer life advice for people. Katie Schubert is a sex and couples therapist and CEO of Cypress Wellness Center in Florida. Thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. So uh, should we just do the knee-jerk reaction here and say, no, if you have problems in your life or if you want advice for something, you should never talk to AI because that's bad. You need to talk to other human beings. (laughs) I don't think that's necessarily the case. I I think the AI is probably a pretty good place to start, but it's going to give pretty general advice, too. Um, Before I came on air, I Googled this and I asked my AI app to give me life advice about being in an unhappy marriage. And the the advice was good, but it was very general. 
I'm, I'm curious, what did it say in a nutshell? Uh, so I, the first piece of advice was um, to work on communication. And the second piece of advice was to seek couples counseling. So that's not bad. That's that's actually kind of good. It's pointing you uh, to go talk to people. But as AI gets more and more intelligent, which I think is what Google is kind of aiming for, is to maybe give you uh, something a little bit more in-depth. Possibly, but humans are incredibly complex and everyone is so unique. So even when I see couples in my office, I never know what kind of communication issues they're going to be having. I have to see them fight in my office. I have to see them communicate. And then I can give more targeted advice. But, you know, all, all the issues that we see as mental health therapists are so unique to the, to the person that we're actually seeing. You know, physicians are, are notoriously, uh, you know, uh, frustrated when patients walk in and they've Googled their medical uh, problems and come up with the diagnoses that 99.99999% of the time is wrong. Uh, yes. But do you see a time that said when uh, a, a sex therapist such as yourself might be able to use AI as a kind of, uh, you know, almost a partner in, in the therapy that you're offering to a patient? And how would that work, do you think? I mean, I think it could work the same way that a simple Google search could work, right? So, you know, if a woman is experiencing a pain with intercourse, for example, they, they could Google that and figure out what some possibilities are to bring to their healthcare provider or to their mental health therapist. It's a great starting place, but I don't, I don't think that it targets like the specifics of what's actually happening with a person or what's actually happening, happening in a, in a relationship. But is, is the danger this, that, that unlike that Google search, which just, you know, gives you a list of articles you can click on and maybe it'll send you to the website of, of somebody, maybe such as yourself, the thing about AI is that you can get into a dialogue with it, uh, and the more sophisticated it becomes, the more that dialogue seems to be almost a human-to-human type exchange. So are you concerned that people will go to this platform, AI, and, and not realize that the AI really doesn't have any empathy with you? The AI really that- doesn't have the, the ability to kind of really get into... Where you, where you are in a particular uh, point in your life, it's just kind of searching the web, coming up with answers and putting it into a more palatable form. Yes, and that and that's the issue. I think you nailed it, is that AI is incapable of empathy. It can feign empathy, right? So when I, when I asked AI about marital advice, the first thing it did was validate my feelings. Marital issues can be, can be rough. But there's no true empathy there. And a lot of times people who are seeking life advice or who come into mental health therapy, they just need a, a tremendous amount of validation because maybe they haven't had it in their relationship or in their, in their upbringing. So th- that is the issue. I think the AI is really good at the factual things, but not so good at the empathy and the validation. Well, I can tell you that there are people out there who have gone to a marriage or couples counselors or really anybody, a doctor, whatever. And, and, you know, because those are human beings, you run the gamut from the good to the very, very bad. (laughs) And you can talk to a human being who likewise does not have true empathy for you. And they are relying on everything they've learned to regurgitate back to you what what their studies showed them you should be doing. So would AI really be that much more different? 
I hope so. I mean, I, I and I hope for everybody if they're if they're seeking mental health therapy that they find a good therapist. I think I think good mental health therapists have empathy skills and are able to validate our clients' experiences. But I mean, I suppose when you're comparing AI to a bad therapist, perhaps they might be the same. <laughs> bad therapist. There you go. That's a new show. Uh, Katie Schubert, uh, sex and couples therapist and CEO of Cypress Wellness Center in Florida. Charles, I can tell you hmm. that if AI ever starts giving life advice, I am going to follow that advice to a T. And you know why? Why? Because I want the AI to know that I supported it when the computers take, take over. over exactly. Yes, I, I was on their side. That's that's your big fear, yes. I know, and, and you want to be on their good side. And <laughs> exactly. It's a, it's a lifelong <laughs> pursuit of yours. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Okay. That's it for KNX In-Depth. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back tomorrow. The real Charles and Rob, not AI. Well, for now, anyway, uh, tomorrow at 1 p.m.